Last Sunday, in examining the first half of verse 2 of John chapter 15, we looked at the terrifying truth that there is a sense in which it is possible to be connected to Jesus and yet to remain fruitless and end up in hell. If someone is merely connected to Jesus in an external way, as a professing Christian or as a church member, but they do not have a vital and organic connection to Christ, then that person is the fruitless branch, which in the beginning of verse 2, we read that the Father takes away. Later on, we read that this branch is thrown away and burned. We see a contrast in the second half of Verse 2, over against the branch that bears no fruit is the branch that bears fruit. And the branch that bears fruit is, we know by contrast, by implication, the person that is vitally and organically connected to Christ. This person is not a, uh, like to use the metaphor that I gave you last week, this person is not like a branch that is duct taped to a vine and merely externally connected, which can bear no fruit because there is no vital and organic connection. This person in the second half of verse 2 is the person that is genuinely connected to Christ Jesus. This is the branch that is vitally and organically connected to the vine that is being nourished and is being strengthened, that is drawing sustenance from the vine. Have you been born again? I pressed that question on you last week. And the person in the second half of verse 2 is the person that can answer, yes, I have been born again. Have you received the Holy Spirit? I pressed that question upon you last week. We looked at Romans 8 where it says, the person who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The person in the second half of verse 2 is the person that can answer, yes, as one who has been born again, as one who has been made alive together with Christ, as one who belongs to Christ Jesus, who is connected vitally and organically. Yes, I am one who has received the Holy Spirit. This person in the second half of verse 2 is vitally and organically connected to Christ Jesus. If this is you, you cannot be taken away like the branch in the first half of verse 2. You cannot be thrown into the fire and burned. And the reason is because you are vitally and organically connected to Christ Jesus. And so He is at the Father's right hand, right now, presently, interceding for you. He is pleading His blood as sufficient atonement for your sins. He is pleading His righteousness as sufficient righteousness for you who have no righteousness in yourself to speak of. His Spirit is the seal. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And He is the down payment, the guarantee. That's the sense of the word seal in the context that it's used in Ephesians chapter 1. He is the down payment, the guarantee of the fullness of the inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, according to 1 Peter 1. 
and for which you are being kept, according to the same passage, 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5. And in the meantime, God has promised to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There aren't exception clauses here. For the one who is truly in Christ Jesus, the one who has been vitally and organically connected to Christ Jesus, for whom the connection is not just with duct tape, but one who is actually in Christ Jesus, actually connected to Him, in, into whom grace has flowed as nourishment flows from a vine into a branch. There is no being taken away. There is no being thrown into the fire and burned. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And as Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nah. I am sure, he says in verse 38 and following, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The branch that is vitally and organically connected to Christ, not just merely externally connected, not just because you're in church, not just because you're a professing Christian, but if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, if you have been born again, if you have received the Holy Spirit, if there is an inward, vital and organic connection to Christ, this is the blessedness that belongs to you. You are not that branch which will be taken away and thrown into the fire and burned. You are a branch in whom God is into whom God is pouring nourishment and sustenance and life like a vine does to a branch. And there is one aspect of this blessedness that we will focus in on this morning, which we see in John chapter 15 and verse 2. Fruit-bearing branches have the promise that they will be pruned. Look at John chapter 15 and verse 2. It's right there, isn't it? Every branch that does bear fruit, He, that is the Father, proves that it will bear more fruit. So the branch that bears fruit is the person vitally and organically connected to Christ. In contrast to the fruitless branch who is merely externally connected to Jesus. Therefore, it stands to reason that everyone who is vitally and organically connected to Jesus, according to this passage, will be pruned. It is a promise of God. But it doesn't sound to our ears, at first at least, much like a blessing, does it? It sounds a little bit like a threat. Uh, you belong to Jesus? Well, then you are going to get pruned. <laughs> After all, pruning is cutting. And we don't want to be cut. Right? When the gardener 
prunes for the sake of more growth. He cuts away portions of a branch which are inhibiting growth for whatever reason. And once that portion of the branch is gone, the remaining portion will grow better. So by way of analogy, God is promising to cut portions of us away. Boy, that doesn't sound good, does it? It sounds painful. But the goodness of pruning depends on how you view the parts that are cut away from you. If a surgeon cuts off a useful hand due to an administrative error or something, a patient is rolled in and he looks at his patient number eight and it says here in the paperwork patient number eight needs his hand cut off. So he cuts off his hand and later we find out the man on the cot was actually patient number nine. Well, that's not a blessing, is it? And the cut has been detrimental to that man's life. But if a surgeon makes a correct excision, removing, for example, a malignant tumor, then, of course, he's done you a great service in cutting away from you. And then, of course, if we can press the analogy a little bit, there are things like fingernails and hair, which are not bad in themselves like a malignant tumor, but they still need some cutting away in order to serve a greater purpose. What, what we see promised in this passage is that God is going to make you more fruitful. That's the promise. And that therein lies the blessedness. God is going to make you more fruitful. That's the good news of the passage today. Believer in Christ Jesus. Genuine believer in Christ Jesus with an inward connection. An organic connection to Christ Jesus. God is going to make you more fruitful. The difficulty for us is that it's going to require some cutting. Let's examine how the Father cuts and, and proves. And what I want to stress is that God is not going to cut away parts of you that don't inhibit your growth, that don't inhibit your fruitfulness. So God is not trying to fundamentally change the personality that He has endowed you with. God has created with variety. I know that some of you have traveled here this morning from Coverly, where most of the dwellings look basically the same. When, when they planned that development, they didn't really plan with diversity. They planned for homogeneity. They planned for sameness. By contrast, when God planned this world, He didn't build it like Coverly, with all of the houses looking the same, cookie cutter. 
God didn't merely plant one kind of flower, even if it was a beautiful kind of flower. We often think about roses as being beautiful, and indeed they are. But God didn't just say, well, here's a good one. Let's just put 10 billion of these on the earth, and that's it. Nor did God just take one kind of fruit. Let's take, for example, an apple, which is juicy and delicious and sweet. And God said, well, here's a good one. Let's put 10 billion apple trees on the, in the world or whatever. God created the world with wonderful diversity. We see this in flora and fauna. We see this in the animal kingdom. And we see this in terms of the types of people that God has put on the earth. There's that saying, it takes all kinds. And it really does. There, there are people who, who really love this, and then people who really love that. People who really gravitate to this, people who really gravitate to that, people who have a knack for this, people who have a knack for that. There are some things that I'm very good at, and there are some things I'm not good at at all. Even preparing for this sermon, I had to brush up on pruning, because I know very, very little, next to nothing about bosom. So I know that pruning is, you take the pruning shears and you cut, but why, for what reason, I don't know. So this week I'm Googling the science of pruning. I'm watching videos and I'm reading blogs on pruning. I don't think that you need to be a master gardener to understand Jesus' analogy here. And so I don't claim to be even now after I read these articles and watched these videos. But I knew that I needed to know a little more clearly than I did something about pruning because I know next to nothing about God. It's not my wheelhouse, but I know that there are some, uh, even in this room, for whom it is your area of expertise. You're very good. I could, I could point out any plant on the drive home, and you could probably tell me what it is. I know, I know it for a fact. It's this way with so many things. There's wonderful variety and what wonderful diversity in terms of how God has created people. And God's plan is not to cut away from you the parts that are different from the guy in the pew in front of you or behind you. God's goal in pruning is not to make you uh, in personality like someone sitting beside you or across from you or whatever at church. That's not God's plan. God's plan is to prune away from you that which inhibits fruitfulness. So there may be things about you which are different from someone else, but they don't inhibit fruitfulness. They're just part of the way that God has made you, the way that God has wired you. So, so what is it then that inhibits fruitfulness? And when you stop and you think about it, it's basically sin, isn't it? Sin is what inhibits fruitfulness, or we could at least say immaturity. And I might distinguish between sin and immaturity something like this. Sin is that which you uh, maybe consciously do in the sense that I'm using it here. What you actively do, what you, when you know better but you do the wrong thing otherwise. Uh, feelings in your, in your heart, attitudes, words, actions that you know full well are wrong, but you just go ahead and do them anyway. Whereas we might say immaturity might be like the shortcomings that you have, where like maybe you don't know things yet, right? Or 
you you do know things, but they're not as clear to you as they ought to be, or etc. etc. I'm I realize I'm I'm making something of a category error here because there's sin involved in immaturity, and immaturity leads to sin, etc. etc. So I, I I fully recognize that, but I'm just trying to use the best words I can to put my finger on something. You can. Somebody can be like really sincere and well-meaning and doing their best and still not be as fruitful as they could be once they grow a bit more, if you know what I mean. And that's what I'm trying to get at when I contrast sin with immaturity in this manner. God is basically going to prune away your sin and your immaturity. He's going to prune away whatever's in the way of making you a more fruitful Christian. That's what God is going to prune away. And so what God is going to do is He's going to work on your heart. And central to sin, and in fact central even to immaturity, is the misprioritization and misallocation of value. This is what idolatry is, and this is what immaturity is. It's the inability to, st- to distinguish between that which is more important and that which is less important. So, idolatry would be like, I know that I uh, should love God and worship God more than anything else, but I don't care. I love my car more, or I love golf more, or I love my sister more, or Whatever. It's putting something else above God, right? Immaturity might be like, no, I know God is first and foremost. But let's say that that you basically think of your car as being just under God. Right? That's not really idolatry, but it's still immaturity because you've you've still misallocated the comparative value of your car relative to God. Like, the car is not almost as good as God. It's well below not even, not even worth comparing and uttering in the same breath. So basically what God is going to do is He's going to work in your heart on the way you allocate value and the way that you perceive what is important and what is unimportant. And He's going to cut away from you idolatry and He's going to cut away from you, again, I'm going to say immaturity. with the nuances and clarifications and caveats that I've attached to. Again, these might not be the perfect words, so if you have better words, no problem. Come and share them with me after, and next time I preach this sermon, I'll improve it with your suggestions. But I'm trying to use, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get at concepts here with the best words that I can. God is going to cut away from you the parts of you that are idolatrous and the parts of you that are immature. And he's going to do that by working on your allocation of value to these things. Now, if God is going to prune, he's going to take away something in us So when we think of pruning, we might think about God taking away our car or taking away our job or something like this. 
But, but that wouldn't be pruning. That would be changing your external circumstances. That wouldn't actually be cutting away from you to make you grow more. So we need to understand that God cutting away idols from us, which He may do, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that is external to us. But God taking away our idolatry from us is distinguishable. Taking away our idols and taking away our idolatry are distinguishable things. God may actually leave what you idolize and yet cut away idolatry from you. Likewise, God may take away what you idolize, but you might still be idolatrous towards that absent thing. Right? So they're distinguishable. Consider, as God deals with you with respect to idolatry, that God may withhold from you in the first place that which you idolize, so that after a while you are confronted with the extent of your idolatry. In the beginning you tell yourself, this thing, whatever it is, X, is not an idol to me. It's okay to desire this, so long as I keep it within reason and don't idolize it. And since I'm not idolizing it, I'm okay. But as time goes on, you realize this about yourself. That whatever X is, you would be willing to sin to get it. Or you realize that you would be willing to sin if you don't get it. And as Tim Keller says, those are hallmarks of idolatry. When you would sin to get something, or when you would sin if you don't get something, you know that that thing is an idol to you. We don't have to build little statues of wood or stone or whatever else in order to be idolaters. When we're willing to sin to get something, or when we're willing to sin if we don't get something, that thing has become apparently more important to us than obeying God, than our relationship with God, than the authority of God, than the fatherhood of God. And so it is an idol. So oftentimes, God will withhold from us in the first place that which we idolize in order to confront us with the idolatry that is, has been latent in our hearts all along towards that thing. So perhaps you really badly want a certain career. And in the beginning, you don't think that it's an idol to you. But God withholds it and withholds it and withholds it. And you don't get through in your studies, in your preparation, in your job applications, whatever. You don't get into that career. And midlife finds you not where you wanted to be. And all of a sudden now, you're going to have a temper tantrum. That shows you that that thing has been an idol to you. The same goes with whether, whether it be children, whether it be a vehicle, whether it be a house, whatever. Midlife crisis is basically people realizing that the things that they were chasing all along were idols to them. And they get to a certain point in, the, in their life and they realize, I didn't get this thing. And I can't deal with that. My life didn't give me, or God and His providence didn't give me the things that I really wanted in life. And now I'm going to rage about that. And now I'm going to react in an ungodly way towards that. 
because I'm going to worship my idol instead of worshiping God in this circumstance. So God brings you to a place by withholding from you that which you are idolizing, where you're confronted with your idolatry. And there, God will work with you if you are a true believer. God will work with you to excise that idolatry. If you are looking at the Word of God to process what's happening in your heart, if you're speaking with Christians that are biblically informed and mature, if you're a member of a Bible-preaching church and you have pastors that care for you and are watching over your soul, brothers and sisters who know you meaningfully, that can speak into your life, God is going to bring you to see. He's going to illuminate your heart even directly by the Holy Spirit to see, hey, whoa, I've got a problem. I've got an idolatry issue. And God is going to work to excise that from you. So perhaps God withholds the idol in the first place. Or, next, God takes the idol away. So you had it, and then He takes it away. And this is another way that God confronts you with your idolatry. In the King James Version, Psalm 39, 11 says, When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makes his beauty to consume away like a moth. The NIV on that same passage says, When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. So King James has translated beauty, NIV has translated it wealth. The ESV translates the verse like this. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. I didn't bother to do an extensive word study. There's a concept there which is clear enough. Whether wealth is a better translation or beauty is a better translation or whatever is dear to him generally is a better... The point there, you see it, is that sometimes what God does is He takes away what is really dear to you. Maybe it's your wealth. You had it, but now God says, you don't see your idolatry yet. I'm going to take this away so that you see it. Right? Maybe it's your beauty, and the Lord takes it away so that you see your idolatry. Maybe it's something else. But God sometimes takes away from us wealth, beauty, whatever is dear to us, so that we see our idolatry. We have the same heart reaction as we did when God didn't provide something in the first place. We rage. Right? How dare God take X away from me? Right? And if God is going to take X away from me, then I'm not going to follow God. What is that? That's idolatry. When our hearts react like that, when we're going to sin to get it, or sin if we don't get it, or sin if God takes it away, it shows us, I have an idolatry problem. And again, God is going to work there. Psalm 32 and verse 9, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me, let me press that point a little further. Psalm 32 and verse 9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Look, sometimes what God will do 
is curb you with a bit and bridle by smashing your idols. God is very concerned with your idolatry. And oftentimes, if we will not smash our own idols, if we will not rein ourselves in to stay near God and not let our hearts wander into idolatry, then God will use a bit and a bridle. And He will smash that idol and bring us with a bit and a bridle back to Him. Again, could be career, relationship, health, whatever. But whatever it is, God may well take it away if it becomes too dear to you. But again, there, God will work with you once you see your idolatry. God will work with you to excise that from your life, to remove that from your life. He will prune that away from you because that's inhibiting fruitfulness. And so God will work with you to take that away. A third way that God cuts away our idolatry from us is actually to give us what we idolize, but to keep us from enjoying it. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says that everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot in life and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God, or this is the gift of God. So, we've all seen it, haven't we? Someone who has everything, but they can't enjoy it. I saw this week a meme that said, don't wait to enjoy life until retirement. And it had a, it had a picture of this elderly couple uh, floating down a river in, in uh, some, uh, I don't know, some, I don't even know what it was. They were obviously on some tour or some, uh, something like this, right? But they were both fast asleep. <laughs> and, and it was like, so here they are, they paid all this money to be here, and they're just out cold. And the, there was a few other people on it, and they were just laughing and then smiling for the picture, right? But it was like, so now they've gotten it, but they're not enjoying it, right? And we've seen this, haven't we? In lots of situations, you see wealthy people that are miserable, right? Or people with a beautiful spouse that are miserable, or people with this or with that that are miserable sometimes what God does is he gives it to you but he keeps it from being satisfying to you so again you're forced you're forced to reroute your joy in a different direction he makes that idolization come up dry for you Right? So these are some ways that God works on excising, taking away idolatry from your life, pruning away idolatry. In Hosea, God uses the metaphor of an unfaithful wife to talk about how he deals with his people. And in Hosea chapter 2, verses 5 and following, we read this. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And this is the Lord speaking. And he says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. 
This is another way of talking about the pruning process. When God cuts away our idolatry from us, it is in order to serve us, to help us, to grow us. He smashes our idols. He withholds or He cuts off our beauty or our wealth or our strength or whatever else. Or He gives us these things but keeps us from enjoying them. In whatever manner the Lord does it though, the goal is not to harm us, but to bring us back like a wandering mule with bitten bridle or like a wandering wife from cutting her off from her lovers so that we will return to Him. God will use bit and bridle or pruning shears on us to take away idolatry from us. And this is like a surgeon cutting away a malignant tumor. It's good for us. It's helpful for us. It's God doing us a service. But oftentimes, it's scary. There is pain involved. So it is with just our immaturity. There are ways where we are just not as fruitful as we could be. Perhaps we're not outright idolatrous, but maybe we're distracted, or maybe we're lethargic or apathetic, or whatever it is. Very oftentimes what the Lord does is He builds focus in our lives. In other words, brings that fruitfulness of focus, or that arises from focus to our lives by cutting off other pursuits, other paths, by showing us the comparative lack of value of other things. The Lord shows us, even with morally neutral things, His all-surpassing value comparatively. And the comparative poverty and dearth of value that is in these other things. Nothing else lasts. Nobody else lasts. We live in a world where, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, moth and rust corrupt. Thieves break in and steal. We know life is short. And so God very often confronts us by orchestrating our circumstances with the way that we have misallocated value, even if it's not outright idolatrous. Like I say, maybe we know God is number one, but we're like, well, the car is basically number two, (laughs) right? So God shows us that we're putting too much priority on our car. One way or another, God shows us in much much the same ways as He does with idolatry outright. Maybe He withholds from you that which you think is so important, or He he takes it away from you, or He gives it to you and then you just find it unsatisfying and it's not what you hoped or whatever. But as time goes on, God matures you so that you allocate worth and value better than you did in the beginning. So he's not only getting himself in the number one spot, but he's getting your car out of the number two spot, right? And he's going to br- bring church from like the 78th spot way up, right? And so on and so forth. And so the, there, are, there are problems in you that are inhibiting your fruitfulness. 
And I, and I say, these are both sin and immaturity, recognizing that that's something of a category error. There are outright problems that are sinful, that are obvious, that are wicked, like idolizing something above God. Then there are things like a young man who's just obsessed with his car, which is, yeah, it's kind of sinful, but it's also like, it's, a car is morally neutral. And to really like your car is not objectively a bad thing, etc., etc. Right? You, you understand what I'm trying to say with this sin and immaturity thing. But God is going to help that young man realize over time that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a nice car, but people matter so much more than possessions. Right? And that, that uh, church membership matters so much more than being on this sports team or whatever it is. And God is going to prune away from those who truly belong to Him the parts of them that hold them back from fruitfulness. Where too much energy is going in this direction or that direction, God is going to cut that branch or a length off that branch so that more energy can be diverted into this blossom over here or that blossom over here. And God is going to shape us and mold us into more and more fruitful people. This process will be good, but it will not be comfortable. This process will be good, but it will not be comfortable. In Hebrews chapter 11, or pardon me, chapter 12, verse 11, we read this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We could say it like this. For the moment, all pruning seems painful rather than pleasant. When the Lord is taking away part of you, it doesn't feel good. When the Lord is cutting, it doesn't feel good. But what does it say? Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When the Lord prunes you, It doesn't feel good at the time, but it yields fruit. God's plan for you is not that you would live your best life now. God's plan for you is not to make you healthy and wealthy. Or I should say, is not necessarily. You may live to 110 and amass great wealth and be a faithful Christian all the while. Let me say this. It's definitely not that you live your best life now. Otherwise, that would mean that this is better than heaven. It's not necessarily that you're going to be healthy and wealthy. That's not necessarily God's plan. What God is doing, what I know God is doing in your life, and Christian, what you need to know God is doing in your life, is that He's making you holy and blameless. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. It says that the... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is one reason for which God chose you, to make you holy and blameless. Romans chapter 8, which I quoted earlier, I'll quote from a different section of it. We read in... Romans 8, that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
God is not necessarily going to give you whatever car you want or whatever career you want or whatever relationship you want or whatever. God's not necessarily going to preserve these things. What God is going to do is make you holy and blameless. What God is going to do is make you more like His Son. And if God has to smash your idols or withhold things from you or take things from you or take away your enjoyment in things or show you how fleeting and how temporal things are and what comparative uh, lack of value there is in such things. God will do that. And what He does in your heart through that in taking away the misallocation of value in taking away the parts of you that allocate too much to this and too little to that, God is going to make you more fruitful. The process will not be comfortable, but it will be good. You're not going to wake up one day and realize that God accidentally cut off your hand. God doesn't make administrative errors, thankfully. God gets the malignant tumor that He came in to take out of you. And He leaves that which you need, that which is good, that which is not inhibiting fruit. God leaves you with the good aspects of your personality that He formed you with and that He made you with. You realize when it says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that's talking about His moral nature. It doesn't mean that we're going to physically look like Jesus. Nor does it mean that our personalities and in all of our diversity are going to be flattened into the personality of the man Christ Jesus. It means that the parts of us that are sinful are going to be taken away and changed and we're going to be made holy like Jesus. And so if you are a branch vitally and organically connected to the vine. There is so much blessedness in that, that you can never be taken away, that God is nourishing you and that God is strengthening you and so on and so forth. And here's, here's a promise which is in view today. You're going to be made more fruitful. God is going to see to it that you're going to be made more fruitful. That's going to involve pruning. But I hope you can see by now that pruning is not actually a bad thing. Pruning is actually a good thing. So you might be in a tough season. And you might be in a season where God is withholding something which you're idolizing. You might be in a season where God is taking away something that you've put too much stock in. You might be in a season where God has given you what you wanted all along, but you're finding this is actually not really all that satisfying. You might be in a season where you thought something was really important, but you're realizing it's less. What God is doing is taking away from you sin and immaturity. Pruning these things from you so that you will bear more fruit. Embrace the vine dresser's work. Embrace the pruning process. I'll just give you one caveat and I'm coming to a close. Not everything in your life Not every suffering in your life and every difficulty in your life is because of a sin in your life or an immaturity in your life. 
it's not so simple as just saying, well, I'm suffering, therefore I must have done something wrong that God wants me to fix. He must be pruning me in this situation. Obviously, I can't expand and say everything about suffering and causes and reasons and whatever today, but I want to throw that caveat out there. That being said, I would encourage you, when you are having a difficult time, ask if the Lord might be pruning if there might be something that the Lord is taking away from you, that the Lord is cutting away from you, from who you are, that the Lord wants to excise from you. Lord, is there something that, that I need to let go of? Is there part of me that you want to cut away? That may well be what God is doing in a particular situation. So embrace the pruning process. Trust the vine dresser. And embrace the, pro- the promise that God will make you more and more fruitful. That's what He's up to ultimately in your life.